our first guest. Back in 2009, when we were at Shoreditch House, David Nichols took to the stage. Um, we didn't have a stage, we had stools, but he was there. Um, and he made us all fall in love with Dexter and Emma. One day went on to do quite well, <laughs> mainly because of that evening. so much for that book. Five years after, he took us all around Europe and to the breaking heart um, of a couple falling out of love in the middle of their midlife crisis. Five years later, and fresh from the incredible Emmy-nominated success of adapting the Patrick Melrose novels, who turns to the salon to premiere his new novel. Now, Sweet Sorrow is, as the name suggests, both sweet and sorrowful. Sometimes more, sometimes less, but it is always enchanting. It's the story of one life-changing summer for 16-year-old Charlie, Charlie is the kind of boy that you don't remember from your school photos. He says of himself, my distinctive feature was my lack of distinction. School was not good, home is even worse. He's stuck there with his depressed dad. And then suddenly, Fran Fisher bursts into his life. Gorgeous, clever, and properly a bit posh. But if Charlie wants to be with Fran, he must risk the censure of his buddies and step out from the safety of average anonymity into the spotlight, quite literally, because Fran, horrifyingly, horrifyingly to me at least, is in an Amdram group. Um, <laughs> they're doing Romeo and Juliet. It gets even worse um, and better. So to find love, Charlie must risk tragedy. The price of hope is Shakespeare. Hark, it is David Nichols. <laughs> Hi. Hello. Hello, everyone. Hi. Um, I've, I've spent the afternoon, um, I don't want to fall off the stage, uh, proofreading this book. So if this goes really badly, technically it's not too late to change it. I, that's right, isn't it? Is that okay? Um, that was um, a perfect introduction. I'm trying to think what I should add. Yes, yeah, so this is um, Charlie Lewis is looking back at this summer, the summer of 1997, that the novel takes place over the course of this summer. And um, he's, the, the first chapters take place on the very last day at school, um, at the, um, the school leavers disco. And this uh, first section, I'm going to read two sections, one from the beginning, one from a little later on. Um, this first section is uh, at the school disco, and it's in the, the slow dance section. And the only other thing you need to know is that someone has been um, sick on the floor, so there's a pile of <laughs> sawdust in the middle of the dance floor. <laughs> the chapter's called Slowies. See the light, there we are, okay. Slow songs provided a school-sanctioned opportunity to lie on top of each other while still standing up. <laughs> I held up my arms to Emily Joyce and for a moment we found ourselves standing with gripped hands out to the side like pensioners at a tea dance. She corrected me, placing my hand on the small of her back and as we began our first rotation, I closed my eyes and tried to identify an emotion. The artificial starlight suggested I ought to feel romantic. The rasping saxophone and awareness of her pelvis and the clasp of her bra should have been enough to spark desire, but embarrassment was the emotion I recognized, and the only longing I felt was for the end of the song. Love and desire were too tangled up with ridicule, and sure enough, at the edge of the hall, my friend Lloyd was waggling his tongue lewdly while Fox turned his back, crossed his arms, and caressed his own shoulder blades. I adjusted my right hand so that only the middle finger showed, which seemed pretty witty to me, and evolved <laughs> away as the saxophone played on. Say something. Say anything. Emily spoke first. You smell of boys. 
Oh, yeah, it's an old games kit. It's all I had. I'm, I'm sorry. No, I like it, she said, and snuffled into my neck, and I felt a wetness there that might have been a kiss or the dab of a damp flannel. <laughs> Grandmothers aside, I had, been ki I had kissed or been kissed twice before, though it might have been more accurate to describe those events as facial collisions. <laughs> the first occasion was in a darkened audio-visual exhibit on a history field trip to Roman remains. There's no reason why anyone should instinctively know how to kiss, like snowboarding or tap dancing. It can't be learned from watching. But Becky Boyne had taken her instructions from Disney fairy tales, pursing her lips into a tight, dry bud that she tapped around my face like a bird getting nuts from a feeder. <laughs> Films had also told us that a kiss was not a kiss unless it made a noise, and so each point of contact was accompanied by a little lip-smacking sound, as artificial as the clip-clop that represents a horse. Eyes open or closed? I kept them open in case of discovery or attack and read the wall display <laughs> behind her. The Romans, I noted, had pioneered underfloor heating, and on it went, the tap, 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 becoming harder and more insistent, like someone trying to unblock a stapler. Kissing Sharon Findlay, on the other hand, was an angry, open-mouthed, frenzied shark attack, both of us jammed down the back of a sofa. My best friend Harper had a den, a concrete bunker in the basement of his house that held a certain notoriety and on Friday nights resembled the Playboy Mansion's fallout shelter. Here, Harper presided over an exclusive, high-rolling DVD parties, doling out own brown lager spiked with soluble aspirin, the olive in our martini, to be drunk through a straw and potent enough to send us behind the sofa, kissing amongst the dust balls and the dead flies. I had never been more aware that the tongue was a muscle, a powerful, skinless muscle, like the arm of a starfish. And when my tongue tried to fight back against Sharon's, they had wrestled like drunks trying to squeeze past each other in a corridor. <laughs> Whenever I tried to raise my head, it was ground back down into the dusty underlay with the same kind of force and motion required to juice a grapefruit. <laughs> I retained a certain memory that when Sharon Findlay belched, my cheeks puffed out. <laughs> and when we finally pulled apart, she wiped her mouth along the entire length of her arm. The experience left me shaken and sore-jawed with two small rips in the corner of my mouth, a third in the root of my tongue, and nauseous, too, from what must conservatively have been half a pint of someone else's saliva. But I was also strangely excited, as if after some harrowing fairground ride, so that I wasn't sure if I wanted to do it again immediately or never again in my life. This dilemma was taken out of my hands when she paired up with Patrick Rogers later that same night. We passed them now on the dance floor devouring each other beneath the institutional glitter ball. I felt another damp patch on my neck, then a murmured sentence that I failed to hear over the music. Sorry? I said, but she was mumbling into my neck again, and I could only make out one word, bath. I can't hear you. Again, something, something, bath, and I wondered, had she said that I needed a bath? If, if only they'd turn the volume down. Sorry, one more time. Emily mumbled. And again? She mumbled again. Okay, I said, last time, Emily took her face from my neck and glared at me with real anger. For fuck's sake, I said I think about you in the bath. <laughs> oh, oh, do you? Oh, well, uh, thank you very much, I said. <laughs> but this seemed inadequate, so um, you too. What? Uh, you too. No, you, you don't. Just, oh, oh, just forget it. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> She groaned and settled her head once again, but there was rage in our slow dance now, and we were both relieved when the song came to an end. 
Self-conscious in the sudden silence, the couple stepped away, faces glinting and grinning. Where are you going afterwards, said Emily. Not sure, meant to be going around Harper's. To the den. Oh, okay. She slumped her shoulders, pouted with her bottom lip, and blew up at her fringe. I've never been to the den, she said, and I might have invited her, but Harper's door policy was ruthless and inflexible. The moment passed, then she gave my chest a single hard push. See ya. I had been dismissed. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, said Mr. Hepburn, back on the mic. It seems that we have time for one last song after all. Like all school DJs, he had lied to us. I want to see every single one of you on the floor, every last one of you. Are you ready? I can't hear you. Remember, dance around the sawdust, please. Here we go. <laughs> the song was Heart of Glass by Blondie, scarcely less, less remote to us in time than in the mood, but clearly a great thing because now everyone was on the dance floor. The theatre kids, the moody pottery kiln kids, the lab technicians pouring out the last of the dry ice. Mr. Hepburn turned the volume up, and to whoops and cheers, Patrick Rogers pulled his shirt off over his head and whipped it through the air in the hope of starting a craze. Then, when this didn't catch on, put it back on again. <laughs> Little Colin Smart, sole male member of the drama club, had organised a trust game where you took it in turns to fall back into each other's arms in time with the music. And Gordon Gilbert was on Tony Stevens' shoulders, embracing the glitter ball like a drowning man clinging to a boy. And now Tony Stevens stepped away and left him dangling while Parky, building maintenance, poked at him with the handle of his mop. Watch this, watch this, shouted someone else as Tim Morris began to breakdance, hurling himself onto the floor and spinning wildly into the sawdust and disinfectant, <laughs> then leaping to his feet and wiping madly at his trousers. And I felt hands on my hips, and it was Harper, shouting something that might have been, love you, mate, then kissing me noisily, smack, smack on each ear, and suddenly someone else had jumped onto my shoulders, and we were all down in the scrum, the boys, Fox and Lloyd, Harper and me, and then some other kids I'd barely spoken to, laughing at a joke that no one could hear, and the notion that these had been the best years of our lives suddenly seemed both plausible and tragic, and I wish that school had always been like this, our arms around each other, filled with a kind of hooligan love, and that I talked to these people more and in a different voice. Why had we left it until now? Too late, the song was nearly over. Sweat plastered clothes to skin, stung our eyes and dripped from our noses, and when I stood up from the scrum, I saw for just one moment Helen Beavis dancing by herself, hunched like a boxer, eyes squeezed tight, singing, ooh, whoa. And then behind her, movement and the sudden hauling open of the fire doors, the atomic brightness pouring in like the light from the spaceship at the end of Close Encounters. Dazzled, Gordon Gilbert tumbled from the mirror ball. The music snapped off, and it was over. The time was 3.55 in the afternoon. <laughs> We had missed the countdown. <laughs> and now we stood silhouetted against the light, dazed and blinking as the staff shepherded us towards the doors, their arms outstretched. Voices hoarse, sweat chilling our skin, we gathered our possessions into our arms. Hockey sticks and coil pots, the rancid lunch boxes and crushed dioramas and rags of sports kit, and stumbled into the courtyard. Girls stood clinging tearfully to their friends, and from the bike sheds came the news that all the tires had been slashed in one last mad, pointless vendetta. At the school gates, kids clustered around the ice cream van. The freedom we'd been celebrating suddenly seemed like exile, paralyzing and incomprehensible, and we loitered and hesitated on the threshold, animals released too soon into the frightening wild, looking back towards the cage. Um, I'm just going to read one other short section, because, um, as Damien said, um, Charlie has this terrible summer stretching ahead of him, and he through a series of uh, contrivances and implausibilities, he ends up in this production of Romeo and Juliet because he, he falls in love with um, this girl, Fran. 
Um, I don't think it's a spoiler to say that uh, you know at some point they get together, and this is from um, this is a short, just a very short section from uh, the chapter after they finally found each other. It's a, from a chapter called Love. But love is boring. Love is familiar and commonplace for anyone not taking part, and first love is just a gangling, glandular incarnation of the same. Shakespeare must have known this. Take a copy of the world's most famous love story and pinch between finger and thumb the pages where the lovers are truly happy, not the build-up that precedes it, not the strife that follows, but the time when love is mutual and untroubled. It's a few pages, a pamphlet almost, the brief interlude between anticipation and despair. The confidences and intimacies of new lovers, the formations of private jokes, the confessions of doubt and insecurity, the reassurances and vows, there's only so much of that stuff that anyone can bear. And if Shakespeare ever did write the scenes where the lovers talk about their favorite food or pick the fluff from their belly buttons or earnestly explain the lyrics of their favorite songs, then he was right to exclude them from the second draft. <laughs> the beginning and the end, the anticipation and despair, that's where the story lies. But the state of being in love, and in particular of being young and in love, is like listening to someone describe their parachute jump or their bizarre dream, the blurred photograph of a life-changing performance taken from too far away. The more intense the experience, the less inclined we are to hear about it, and we'll, we're happy that their love was changed, and, uh, while their life was, well, we're happy that their life was changed, and it must have been thrilling. Can we move on? So. Best to assume that when we were alone and we weren't talking, then we were kissing or fooling around, and that this was all amazing. So much so that I couldn't comprehend why grown-ups weren't doing it all the time. Something, I suppose, that we will spend the rest of our lives discovering. Assume, too, that when we stopped long enough to talk, these conversations were all more open and insightful, free-flowing and intense, funny and serious and profound than any other conversation that had ever taken place. Not just talking, but really talking. Assumed that we were funnier than anyone we'd ever met, and that the time when I made Fran laugh so hard that she wet herself, actually wet herself through jeans, was one of the proudest moments of my life. <laughs> Assumed that nothing was felt in a half-hearted way, whether passion or anxiety, desire or fear. Assumed that we made compilations and liked each other's music fiercely, and if not, pretended to. That we listened solemnly and silently to Nick Cave and Scott Walker singing about us, Nico and Nina Simone auditioning for the song that would be our song, the song that made us cry, and that other behavior previously thought to be silly or repulsive, holding hands, aggressive public kissing, the passing of chewing gum from mouth to mouth, lost its queasiness. Assumed that we never wanted to be anywhere else or with anyone else, that time apart was time wasted, and that it was impossible to imagine the circumstances when we might not feel this way. There's some of this to come, not much more than a pamphlet, and it can't be helped. The greater part of it will go unmentioned, but also unforgotten. That's it. Thank you. Swooning all over again. I was worried about, you know, the, uh, one of my many worries was the word assume. I, I, is, am I saying that right? Assume? Was that okay? I'm, I'm saying it wrong. That's okay. like, you, you're Remind acting it. like you're in an amateur production <laughs> just now. You're calling out to the back of the village hall. Am I saying assume all right, Moira? Moira? Am I all right with my assume? I have to record it again. It was fantastic. And it was brilliant to hear you reading it. Um, and for it all to come to life. It transported me back to the school discos 
Um, yeah. And I think everybody else who is here, there's no sawdust in this room, just FYI, <laughs> there is no pile of it. So given, given how difficult love is to describe, and you describe it then, which I think is just so clever, the way that you, the way that you confront that, and the idea that it's like people describing their dreams or talking about their yeah. drug experiences. Why, why decide to tackle it in a novel, given that it is so difficult? I don't know. Uh, I think um, it's, it, for many people, it's sort of the central event of their lives, isn't it, really? I think there's that. I have, Falling in love for the first uh, yeah, time. Yeah, I, I haven't, or the first time, or the, the, this one major love. I've never read it, but I always thought it was a great title, the Saul Bellow novel, More Die of Heartbreak. I always think that's, that's how important it is and how central it is to our lives. And it seems bizarre not to want to... Uh, write about it but you know as as uh, as the character says in the book it's a very um it's a very difficult thing to write about when it's happy it's uh the, the, the middle bit is not necessarily where the the best material lies yeah so did you have that experience of trying to write about it is that was that your was that your learning about it as you were writing um uh i suppose so i think i i, I my feeling is that i'm i'm always more comfortable uh writing about things going wrong um and I, I, I don't know if that, it feels a bit of a failing, really. I, I suppose um, it would be nice to write something that was entirely sweet and warm and happy and uplifting. But I, I'm inclined to, to, to mess it up just because it's more interesting, I suppose. I think you need the sorrow to give the sweet. Otherwise, it would just be so sweet we'd all be sliding into diabetic comas. Yeah. I mean, it is quite a... Even reading that aloud, I'm a bit self-conscious because it's, it's a hard thing to... Um, uh, to talk about without being sentimental or mawkish or, mm. or corny, you know, and I, I'm, I, 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 everything I've written really has had a big, with the exception maybe of Patrick Melrose, has had a big um, love affair at its centre, and, and um, uh, I've always found, I, don't, I haven't found it boring yet, I mean it may have been boring to watch, but I haven't found it boring to write about, I think it's, it, there are endless permutations and complications and ambiguities to explore. I think given the trajectory that you've been on in terms of the ages and stages of life, I think people yeah. thought you were going to write like a kind of care home love novel. Yeah. Well, it's true. I mean, my first novel was about being a student, and the second one was about a sort of late 20-something crisis, and the third one one day went up to 42, and the fourth one was about a 54-year-old. And I suppose I felt that I'd written my midlife crisis novel and that it, I had some time left to write my, my getting older novel. And, and I didn't want to... I didn't want to um, write another uh, novel, a kind of round-shouldered novel about how hard it is to be a 50-year-old man. I didn't want to do that. I think the world is quite a lot of those books. Yeah, I, feel, like I, I feel that too. And I also felt, I suppose, that I always thought, I didn't really think about my youth in my 20s and 30s. I always thought that, that childhood and your teenage years was something that you sort of sailed away from, that, that they sort of receded in the distance. And and as you became your own person. But uh, as I've got older, and I, I suppose perhaps as I become a parent, I find myself thinking about that. About how you were then. More and more, how, how I was then. And, and, you know, I should say, of course, that I wasn't 16 in 1997. And, um, <laughs> you know, I was 16 in 1982. And I, 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 there, are, there are plot reasons why uh, I've brought it up a bit. But it's also so that you don't get into a kind of... Um, a too much of a nostalgic reverie about your own experience that you're you're forced to, to think about the uh, a, a more general universal experience rather than you know endless spandau ballet jokes you know what i mean it's the kind of it's it's it, it stops you just kind of going through your own personal photo album thinking more seriously about uh, the situation and the characters who aren't necessarily 
don't necessarily mimic your experience. Yeah, and who have a different time frame exactly. and everything else. Yeah. Um, but did you do the flicking of the going through your own personal photo album to start and then, and then move away from it? I did, it with, um, I did with One Day, very yeah. much so. I mean, One Day was, was a real sort of playlist novel in that you know, I, I listened to a lot of music and went through a lot of newspapers and, and did a lot of, um, I suppose, reminiscence, even though there's very little in One Day that actually happened in my own life. Mm. But it was a, it was a fairly blatant... Uh, I mean, you know, the characters were exactly the same age as me, and I wanted to, to avoid that this yeah. time, I think. Um, when did you make the decision to bring in the play to bring in Romeo and Juliet? Well, you know, I'd always wanted to... I mean, I have a very ambivalent relationship with the theatre. I was an actor for a while, and, and, but I didn't grow up going to the theatre. I didn't see a play until I went to university, and I... I, I just did lots of... So did nobody, there was no, no visiting theatre company came to your school? No. There was no... I mean, I, I'm trying to think of... As I say that, I'm trying to think if that's an exaggeration. I don't think it is. No, the, the plays that I knew about were the plays that I did. And I thought that experience of being in a play was so dramatic and melodramatic and self-indulgent and romantic and funny and exciting that, that it would be great to write about it one day. When I, when I went to university, I... Um, I, this first summer holidays of university, I was asked to be in a production of A Midsummer Night's Dream. I've been in Midsummer Night's Dream seven times now. And um, it was a, 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 for an am, amateur dramatics company in Kent called the Ouster Theatre Company. And I played Puck, of course. And um, even though, you know, I was a terrible Puck and it wasn't a great production, <laughs> there was something about that four-week period that was very romantic. And Romantic uh, how? Like romantic as in you were into somebody else in the company or romantic has no, enabled that, you to be no, a different all of kind of was, version of you? All of that was very unsuccessful, <laughs> but the, you know, the, the business of going somewhere, meeting new people and that whole, you know, put on a show thing. I remember one night when it rained and we couldn't use the, we couldn't do it outdoors. So we had to kind of improvise a, 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 a new location so that we could do it despite the storm and we went off to this church hall and just kind of improvised it for the audience without knowing where anyone was going to come on stage or go off stage and it was really terrible but the experience of doing it was sort of thrilling and exciting yeah. and you know you get very attached to each other and then you all disappear and I suppose I wanted to write warmly about that but it's very hard to write about that from someone who loves it and, and has lots of experience and thinks that theatre is great so Charlie goes into it with a certain scepticism and certain detachment and actually a kind of horror initially of you know, these people. And um, there's a comedy in that, I suppose, in having a certain cynicism about it. Yeah, he can't believe how he says if it's, if it's supposed to be creative and set you free, why has he never felt more constrained in his entire life? He's absolutely yeah. terrified and horrified by it. He's horrified by the, you know, the games and the, the sentimentality and the, the kind of intensity of it all. And also the kind of... Um, uh, you know, he's, he, he's failed horribly at school and he doesn't think of himself as uh, intelligent. And, and, you know, it sounds sentimental if I describe it, but part of the journey he goes on isn't just falling in love, but is also kind of growing to love Shakespeare, loving these, these words, loving language. Loving because he starts off absolutely hating it and thinking yeah. that, it's, that it's rubbish. What are the moments that you think help him connect with it? Well, there's a sort of Pygmalion, uh, he, initially his relationship with Fran is that she's sort of, he's playing Benvolio, which is one of those very generic, very unexciting sort of um, best friend parts. And he, he just can't understand a word of it. And there's a, uh, in the first half of the novel at least, there's a kind of 
uh, Pygmalion storyline where she talks him through it line by line and word by word, and that's yeah. part of their falling in love. Part of their falling in love, yeah. So it sounds corny, but I really do love Shakespeare. And although I didn't go to the theatre, one of my most vivid school experiences was watching um, uh, my English teacher putting on uh, Macbeth, the Ian McKellen, Judy Dench, black and white uh, yeah. television. Uh, recording, which was really extraordinary. And even though I didn't understand it, I got a general sense that it was extraordinary and exceptional, and, and it really had a massive effect on me. And I've always loved Shakespeare, even though I feel a bit um, self-conscious even saying that, you know, like, for complicated reasons. I think that you're in, in a room of people that are, <laughs> uh, that are supportive of that. Yeah. I think we're all down with that. Um, let's talk about class, because Charlie and Fran are from from different classes yeah. and I think you deal with this incredibly well. It's one of the things that you write about um, in a way that's very winning but also very piercing. Um, you see the differences um, that, that they see and you relay them to us. So can we talk about the, sort of the different classes that they're from and how, they, how those differences manifest themselves? Yeah, I think it, a lot of it manifests itself, I think, in the, um, in the relationship with the parents. You know, Fran has a very comfortable middle-class background and is very comfortable, isn't self-conscious about what I've just described, about culture and poetry and art and all of these things and music. You know, she's quite pretentious and precious, but, but she just has been brought up in that world and surrounded by those things and, yeah. and doesn't have that um, sense of performance when she's uh, talking about those things. As Charlie, is, Charlie, for complicated reasons, has sort of failed at school and... Uh, and is part of, and his friends are very a kind of. There's a kind of, kind of quite militant, aggressive, anti-artiness uh, in the school and in his background. And um, uh, you know, the only glimmer I suppose he has of kind of uh, a more challenging culture is his dad is an obsessive jazz. Uh, fanatic, a, a failed jazz musician, but a great jazz aficionado, which is something else that Charlie doesn't quite get. So I think he just feels that, at the beginning of the book anyway, that none of this stuff is for him. Yeah. That it's, uh, that, uh, that, yes, it's slightly um, excluding. And, you know, that changes over the course of the book. Yeah. Um, let's talk about his relationship with his dad, because he's on his own with his dad in this, in this house, where his dad's getting sadder yeah. and, and sadder. What's happened to the parents? Um, it's it sort of, uh, the parents have just split up and the father who's trying to kind of launch a jazz revival through his chain of record shops in the, it's in an unnamed town, but it's sort of somewhere near Gatwick. It's a sort of series of small suburban towns, um, has become bankrupt. So he's lost his, um, the father's lost his wife and lost his business and is kind of spiraling into depression and alcoholism. And, and Charlie is suddenly finds himself in the role of, of carer, of being alone with his uh, father, who he used to be once very close with, but, but now is, is, um, is desperate to avoid. And I suppose the subplot of the novel is him finding some kind of uh, way of dealing with that, so finding some kind of peace and some way of, um, of living alone with his dad and, and coming to terms with his, mother, uh, his mother's departure as well. One of the things that I think is really clever about the book is that you don't name depression, you don't use the term until much later on um, yeah. in the book, and it's interesting that you know, this also happens in Kirsty's novel, as an unnamed um, condition which is causing great pain, not just to the character who's suffering it, but the, but the people around them, but to Charlie. It's not that his dad's unwell, and it's not that he's particularly sympathetic, it's that his dad's a 
pain in the arse and yeah. he's worried about them and he's drinking too much and he smells and he's just depressing to look at as opposed to actually suffering. You know, he's not particularly sympathetic. No, I, I mean, I wanted to be quite sort of frank and honest about how we respond to that kind of um, illness and, uh, and that it's not always nurturing and understanding and sympathetic and actually he's quite bored by it. And uh, you know, there's a point where someone says, well, you sound as if you're your father's carer, and he doesn't recognise the notion of care. He really just wants to, to get away. He talks about being his father's resenter rather than his carer. Yeah. And he's hugely uh, unsympathetic. But, you know, that's part of the journey of, that the character takes during the, the course of the novel. But, yes, it's, a, it's, a, it's at the beginning of the book a bit of a taboo for him and his family to, to address what's up with his, what's up with his dad. Mm. Yeah, it is amazing the way that you portray that. I think it's really, really, really touching. It's part of, obviously, the sorrow that goes alongside yeah. the sweetness. Yeah. Yes. Um, I should take a couple of questions for David from, from you out there, if anybody wants to put their hands up. I think I thought I saw Sylvia earlier. I know. A little bit of light. <laughs> there can be questions about the seven productions of Midsummer Night's Dream. Oh, there's a question here. Hi, Eliza. Go ahead. What made um, you love Shakespeare? I, uh, well, I did a lot of it, you know, and then when I was an actor, I used to audition a lot, and I, I, I think I've now seen most of the plays, and I've certainly read most of them, and I just, um, I'm often frustrated by productions, but whenever I go and see even a not very good production of, of Shakespeare, I always go home and look up these extraordinary passages of poetry that, that, are, that seem unbelievably contemporary often, you know, they just seem... Uh, extraordinarily vivid and precise and not at all rarefied and and I think particularly I, I mean I, I I once did an adaptation of um, a kind of retelling of Much Ado About Nothing for the BBC which I, I really with Damien Lewis and Sarah Parrish I really loved it as a piece of work and I, I suppose working on that I realized how much this does sound pretentious I've taken from Shakespeare, and particularly Shakespearean comedy, this sense of even in the most joyous, light-hearted play that, that death or grief or uh, some terrible catastrophe or some, some darkness is going to impinge. Mm. And there's a, you know, even the, I, I love Much Ado About Nothing, Twelfth Night, As You Like It, they all have um, a little tragic comic element to it that is, that is incredibly haunting, often much more haunting and affecting than some of the tragedies. Um, so it's, uh, I don't want to uh, make it sound as if I, you know, I sit in bed every night reading Love's Labour's Lost, I don't, but whenever I do come across the plays and come across the poetry, I'm, I'm really um, affected and moved by it. How far did you get with your uh, Shakespearean acting? You got to Puck. Did you get, did you get as far as a Benvolio or even a um, Romeo or a Juliet? I auditioned a lot. And I used to do a very, a very vivid, powerful Richard III. <laughs> and, and, and a very contemplative... And my favourite was Richard II. I used to do... A, I, used, I, used to had a, I had a lot of audition speeches. And, um, uh, but I never really... Apart, I was in Midsummer Night's Dream. Yeah, I played Puck. I played Lysander. I played Demetrius. I played Starveling. <laughs> I played Peter Quince. I was in a lot of productions of Midsummer Night's Dream, but I never got to do... Richard II. Certainly, I never got to do my Richard III, which was 
Did you Bless just it, my Richard Devard. <laughs> my, Richard. <laughs> my Richard Devard. My Richard was Devard. It a, was it a director who described it to you as vivid and powerful? Uh, in the no, way that one a, might describe a, a really terrible, horrific outfit um, or something like that, or a seizure. When I was, um, you know, starting out as an actor, I was very influenced by that Anthony Sher book, you know, Year of the King, and the whole kind of idea that if you're playing these parts and you'd get rigged up with corsets and crutches and, uh, and prosthetics and that it was a kind of big baroque... I mean, I was just a very um, hammy actor, really. That's the truth of it. But I did love it, yeah. and I wish I'd done more. I mean, I, I wish I'd done anything that wasn't Midsummer Night's Dream, which isn't a play I particularly like. But, um, I, you know, I did a lot of it at university. I, gave, I did Dogbury, and uh, that was terrible as well. I gave a lot of very bad Shakespearean performances, but I always loved being in them. Yeah. I always loved just the music of it. And I think that's what you bring to this book. Um, and I loved being in it. It was a fantastic place to be. You will love it too. It's out this summer. It's fantastic. Please join me in thanking David Nichols. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.